for tonight's sermon. We will sing number 390 in the Red Trinity Hymnal. Lord of the Sabbath, hear us pray. Let us sing stanzas 1, 3, 4, and 6. 1, 3, 4, and 6. And let's stand together and sing. Romans chapter 3. And after we read the scripture, why don't we respond together with one voice with the questions and answers of the Catechism of Lord's Day 23, which is on page 30 in the back of our Blue Psalter hymnal. So let's look at those together. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. This is God's word, our authority in faith and in life, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And without error, let us give our attention to its reading. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. And so let us respond together as I read the questions and then we can respond uh, with the answers to 59 through 61 of Lord's Day 23. Sorry, I know I haven't been doing this regularly, um, so I'm throwing you a little bit of a curveball tonight. But let's respond together. What good does it do you, however, to believe all this? In Christ I am right with God, an heir to life everlasting. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. How is school going this year or this month? A mother asks her child. Fine, the child responds. But at parent-teacher conferences, the mother finds out that the teacher feels much differently. The teacher cannot get the child to cooperate, despite her many attempts at disciplining or reprimanding. If such a thing happens, the mother will come home and say, Why were you telling me that everything was fine? That was not being truthful. And what about in marriage? It would not make sense, no matter what is said, for one spouse to believe everything is wonderful and one spouse to believe everything is awful. The point is that relationships function with a mutuality. Both people should agree on how it is going. The two sides should be in agreement about the state of the relationship. Is it a good relationship and working properly? Would both sides give a similar report on how it is? It's important to delve into this question as it relates to our spiritual selves. Because of the history of our country, which is in many ways a great history and a great story, most citizens feel as if they have at least a partial connection to the Christian faith. 
And certainly if you go abroad, particularly into the developing world, the feeling is that to be an American is to be Christian, even if just culturally so. But in today's age, we are finding out how dangerous that type of thinking can be. I'm indebted to one of my fellow elders who brought my attention to a website called The State of Theology. And on this website, there was a poll conducted that 46% of people who identify themselves not just as Christians, but as evangelical Christians, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 46%, nearly half. 36% of evangelicals uh, believe that the good deeds that we do contribute to earning our place in heaven. Both of these are as disheartening as they are staggering. And it shows that in this country, we are like those spouses who believe everything is good with the other when that is not always the case. The fundamental issue of human existence is our standing before God. God will not accept the worship of people who are not right with him. He does not just let sin slide or wink at it and It is not good enough to throw around general references to God and his goodness. You can turn on mainstream award shows nowadays and find performances of scripture or praise songs claiming to glorify God. But we ask ourselves, do we know what it means to be right with God? The term evangelical is derived from evangel. A word that means the gospel or good news. It means we are people of the gospel. And the gospel is good news because it tells us how we are right with God. It declares to us in no uncertain terms the way of salvation. One of the forms in which the gospel is presented to us is reconciliation. Being reconciled to God. Passing from a state of being out of favor with God and out of friendship with him, into being in favor with God, called his friend. How are you made right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, the catechism tells us. We'll unpack the details of this from tonight's lesson from God's word in Romans 3. The first thing that we notice from this passage in Romans is that reconciliation is objective, It is universally true, and it is accomplished. People have tried to do various things to soften this idea of reconciliation with God. Now, it's, it's, of course, it is cast in relational terms, that God becomes our father, he becomes our friend. And so uh, that, that is indeed a wonderful message, full of love. But the problem that many people have with it is the first half of reconciliation, that we are out of favor with God. So people have tried to soften this notion because they're uncomfortable with it being God is a transactional God or a uh, God who makes deals in heaven rather than being a loving father. What we should know is that just because God portrays his salvation to us in terms of reconciliation does not mean that that is the only way that he can communicate the message of salvation. We read in the New Testament of redemption, of adoption, of cleansing, of God's love, of God's wrath. All of these show to us that there is a a multifaceted spectrum of ways 
to describe what happens in our salvation. We also remind ourselves that to confess that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to say that we do not have the right to question the way that God does things. He reveals to us how our salvation happens and we believe it. That's why we take so much time in our worship services to to gather around God's word and to hear from his word because we want to know what he says about himself. God declares it to us and we simply believe it. This is difficult in an open society fashioned around the freedom of the self, but we must fight to maintain a notion that God is a God who condescends to us to reveal his character, and we are called simply to believe the scriptures. So we turn to this text in Romans chapter 3. In verse 21, we read of a righteousness from God that has been made known. It is something that has been revealed and shown to the world. We live in a time where tech companies, if they're revealing a a new product, a new fangled gadget, a new phone, every time a new iPhone comes out, there is a big reveal party, a big event. People gather around and there are television cameras in the room and uh, some smart man or woman goes up on stage and tells us all the great things about this new phone and how it's going to make our lives so much better and it generates all of this new excitement around the product so that when it's released a few weeks or days later, uh, there will be more people purchasing it. But after that event, after that party, to show people what this new phone will do, they know what the phone is. It has been made known. It has been broadcast. The news is out there. And the apostle tells us that this is how it is with the righteousness of God. It has been made known. It has been put on display. And of course, he is talking about Jesus Christ, who is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God made known. He is the way of salvation put on display and broadcast to the world. When we read the book of Acts, this is exactly what we see transpiring going from town to town and place to place and people telling those who need to hear of Jesus about the man, Jesus Christ. The apostles do not proclaim a vague notion of a metaphysical being who causes the movement of all things or is the first cause of all things. That Those things are true about God, but they go from town to town proclaiming a story about a Jewish man, A Jewish man who lived according to his father's will, who died and who rose again for our salvation. That is the gospel. This this story is one that is not culture-driven. It is not something that needs to be cast in a different light to different people groups. It has changed the world for that very reason. Because you can take the story of Jesus Christ, put it in any language, and declare it to anyone on the face of the earth. You can go to China and proclaim that the true God offers salvation in his son. And it is the same message that you would declare in an obscure city off the coast of Iceland or in the heart of Africa or in the good old United States of America. We should not be asking ourselves what are the aspects of Christ's story or what are the aspects of Christ's life that we should share with people. 
there is a, a fashionable way of thinking sometimes in the church today that we should not emphasize that Christ is the Son of God to certain people groups. But when we do things like that, we're taking away the hope of who Jesus is and what he does for us. The gospel is true. It is out there. It is broadcast. It is put on display in the story of Jesus Christ. But as we read in Romans chapter 3, there are obstacles between God and man that prevent his favor, that prevent him from being a friend to us. What does it mean to be reconciled? Those who are nervous about the idea of God making deals or contracts, they those who are nervous about this idea say, say that, that God's disposition changes towards us and that uh, that is how reconciliation happens. That God starts thinking about us as his friend and the gospel message is that we need to start thinking about God as our friend. That's how salvation happens. They say that God becomes a friend to us. He abandons uh, his thoughts about us that are wrathful, and would punish us, and what we are called to do is now accept that this is true of God, that he thinks about us as a friend, and that is how we are reconciled. But this is in contradiction to what we see in the first part of our passage tonight. Salvation is not merely a subjective experience, but it is an objective fact of history. Christ has accomplished reconciliation. And this is brought out as we move through this text. There are some who say that that is how salvation works, though. God lays aside his wrath just because he wants to, and what we need to do is meet God halfway. But this fails to account for the fact that what is actually the most important cause to the enmity between God and man is stated in verse 23. It says this, very famous verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a, in fact, a summary statement of the first three and a half chapters of the book of Romans. Paul says in chapter one that the wrath of God has been revealed against the unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what he goes on to say is how Jews, Greeks, circumcised and uncircumcised, everyone has broken the same law. Whether they had it written down or not does not matter because they broke it and they are accountable to it. It's a universal truth of humanity that everyone has broken God's law. Refer back to the website that I talked about in the beginning of the sermon. And that we have a poor understanding of truth becomes more evident as you work through some of these questions that people are asked in these polls. One of the questions was this. Does even the smallest sin deserve eternal condemnation? And 61% of people who identify as evangelicals disagree with that statement. They disagree with the statement that even the smallest sin deserves eternal condemnation. We need to recognize that we have a massive problem with how we are viewing our sin. A massive problem as a culture. We also have a massive problem with how we are viewing God and his holiness. The Puritan John Bunyan said that every prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it 
to condemn the whole creation, or uh, rather, the best prayer he ever prayed had enough sin in it to condemn the whole creation. And we wonder why so many people who say they're Christians or, or, or grow up with a loose connection to, uh, to Christian communities, we wonder why they have lost touch with the gospel message. It's because they have lost touch with the seriousness of their sin. And they have lost touch with the holiness of God. Every little sin that we commit makes us worthy of eternal punishment. And that is the universal barrier which separates us from God. We hear a lot of talk today about borders and walls and crossings. And everyone has an opinion But God lives in the the splendid glory of his righteousness. And he did not build a wall keeping us away from him. We built a wall between ourselves and him. And so spiritually, we are the ones who have alienated ourselves from God. And we have made it impossible to enjoy him because of our own disobedience. All have sinned and all are worthy of condemnation. All need something that saves them. But of course, this is where our Savior comes in. For God did not allow us to languish in a far-off land, to be cut off from Him forever. We know that we can be made right with God. And not by doing good deeds, and not by God merely winking at sin, or, or, or forgetting about all of the ways which we have offended Him. For we read that in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself. He was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And we are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, the way of salvation is something that has been broadcast and put on display. And it has been so in Christ, our Savior. How does the life of Christ connect us to being reconciled. The message of Christ and the life of Christ is laid out fairly simply. His, his work in his life and his death is of infinite value. The forgiveness and the righteousness that he provides is obtained by human beings when they respond to the message of his life, what he did, by believing, by having faith in the gospel message. Paul summarizes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. This is what Paul says he is doing as he preaches the gospel. God is making his appeal to men through him. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's ministry was fairly simple. He knew that all the hard work had already been done in Christ and the call upon his life was to go from town to town and to implore people on behalf of Christ and for the sake of Christ to believe this gospel message. In other words, you could say it like this. God reconciles us and we let ourselves be reconciled. He was the one who accomplished it in Jesus Christ. And people grasp hold of this blessing of salvation 
by faith. They reach outside of themselves and grab a hold of it by faith. That is what salvation is. In our passage in Romans, reconciliation has the title of justification. Justification is equivalent to being reconciled. Romans 5 verse 1 later in the book says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peace with God, being made right with him, is what happens as a result of our justification. How does it happen? It happens freely as a gift. Verse 28 Romans 3, for we know that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It is a gift. It is free. It is freely given. But while a gift is freely given, it is not freely obtained. If a gift were freely obtained, it would be easy to be a gift giver, would it not? But a gift is not freely obtained, though it is freely given. In order for God to offer this wonderful gift of free justification... It came at a great cost to himself. It cost him his son, who paid the price for this gift, as the Catechism puts it, with his satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. These three terms describe to us how our reconciliation happens. Satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. The satisfaction of Christ we see in verse 24 of Romans chapter 3. We are justified by God's grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. The word for redemption can mean buying out of slavery or purchasing out of captivity or even releasing from torture. It is a word that is connected to the Old Testament system of sacrifices, which we see highlighted in verse 25, which says that Christ was a sacrifice of atonement. The word Sacrifice of atonement is translated in other versions as propitiation, which is a big word, but it's a word that we all should mean. It's a word that means something that turns away the wrath. So Jesus Christ was our propitiation. He turns away the wrath of God, and he does that by bearing it himself. Some have said throughout the history of the church that How Jesus does this is he pays a price of redemption not to the Father, but to the devil. But the scriptures tell a different story. That the price for sin was paid by the Son to the Father. That Christ ascended into heaven after he had been crucified. And he presented his work before the Father. His work of bearing the wrath of God as our propitiation and the father was pleased and accepted that sacrifice of atonement some people struggle with this because they think that it paints God the father as too wrathful pouring out wrath on his son in order that his wrath upon us might be removed but think about it this way when the father was pouring out his wrath on the son did he ever stop loving the son If God is a perfect being who cannot change, and he is perfect in his love, then he could never change his love for the Son. Even while the Father poured out his wrath on his Son, our Savior, he never stopped loving him. The Father is perfectly capable of loving the Son while pouring out his wrath upon him. The Gospel calls us to accept this truth with a believing heart. We are also 
saved, reconciled by the righteousness of Christ. He was a righteous man. We have read earlier that God willed him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And of course, that is one side of the story. And the other side of the story is that we become the righteousness of God in him. Christ bore what we are sinful in order to give us what he is righteous. In being united to Christ, we become the righteousness of God. The gospel calls us to accept this truth with a believing heart. Not only are sins paid for in Jesus, not only is there a satisfaction and a righteousness, but there is also a holiness of Christ. The holiness of Christ is granted to us in our union with him and it bolters, bolsters our assurance that his cleansing is once and for all and we can never lose our state of being justified or adopted. The gospel calls us to accept this truth with a believing heart. We are justified by faith, cleansed, renewed, made righteous, fit for eternity, redeemed and reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. As we stumble through this world, we often lose sight of the ultimate things. We are often too focused on the bumps in the road in front of us or the rocks that we stumble on while trying in some way to move forward. But if we pause for a few brief moments, we will be reminded that often the distance of our awareness through the fog that so easily comes into our minds There are three crosses that were raised up on Golgotha. On one hung the perfect savior of the world. On the other hung two thieves. One of these thieves mocked and scorned Jesus. But the other saw in him a righteous man who held the keys to eternal life. For both of these men, their Christ hung. One of these men reached out and took hold of this Savior in faith. The other one did not see any worth in what our Savior did. What about us? What about us, brothers and sisters? Christ sits enthroned, but his work on the cross is just as effectual as it ever was. Do we know we must be saved? Do we believe in him who is powerful enough to save? It is not because we are so good at believing that we can be made right with God, but only because the one whom we believe is so good at saving. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, may the truths of your word sink into our hearts, into our minds, to compel us to be faithful, obedient servants, reconciled to you, justified by faith. Thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's respond.